Should you cancel your CFP designation? A $100 increase in the CFP annual certification fee spurred an industry outcry, leading many to question whether the CFP designation is worth it or not. There are more than 92,000 CFP certificates. Are they getting a raw deal? Is it time to say F the CFP designation? Well, today I have a bunch of very opinionated people here and we will be debating this subject. It's about to get very, very heated folks. So welcome party people. It is me, Sarah G with the smack and I am back. And we also have Robert Wright, CFP, a financial consultant with Advocacy Wealth Management. Robert will be on the four team. J.R. Robinson, founder of Financial Planning Hawaii. J.R. will be on the against the CFP team. And of course, my buddy, Scott Salaski of First Metric. Scott will also be on the against the CFP team. But anyways, welcome, gentlemen, and I'd like to have all of you just offer your opening statements, please. Oh, sorry. My apologies. Uh, no. Uh, so, uh, again, I don't represent the, the CFP board per se, but uh, just for the, you know, the for this podcast, I'll be on the affirmative. Um, so I've been in the industry for about 10 years. I've been a certified financial planner for uh, about three of those. So it's been a it's been a great journey and it's uh, it's been very rewarding having the designation. Okay, so that was Robert Wright. He's clearly a supporter of the CFP. <laughs> okay, JR. Sure. So um yeah, I, I as you said, I'm um I'm the owner of uh, Financial Planning Hawaii. I also own Fee Only Planning Hawaii and Para Planning Hawaii, and I'm a co-founder of software maker Nest Egg Guru. Um, I've been in this industry for about uh, 34 years. And over the past 15 years, I've published probably a dozen commentaries that were uh, intended to raise awareness of the CFP board's long history of ethical lapses and that is openly critical of the board for putting its own political and monetary interests above those of the consumers it purports to protect. So um, should also mention that my ongoing research into advisor misconduct was part of what um, helped spur the Wall Street Journal expose in 2018. Um, and I think I'm I was cited in that article too, uh, but um, nothing that the CFP board has done in the wake of that scandal has changed my opinion in any way about the board or led me to believe that it's mended its ways or its behavior. In fact, I conclude exactly to the contrary. So um, I just, just in case there was any ambiguity about where I was coming from, um, that's my position with respect to the CFP board. Are you a CFP certificate or were you ever? Um, I'm actually a zealot. So I went through this the entire CFP planning program, uh, the prep program in 19, in the early 1990, mid 1990s through the College of Financial Planning. I was so turned off by the insurance bias. I never sat for the exam. I already had an existing book of business. I didn't need it. Okay. Scott. Scott. Yeah, my name is Scott Selaski. I'm the CEO of First Metric. I've been a financial advisor for over 20 years now, I don't know the exact date. I have to go back and look at it. But um, uh, during my entire time as an advisor, I've ran across uh, different interactions with um, different CFPs, uh, different, uh, I guess, uh, interactions with the CFP board, not personally, but through CFPs that I knew or were employed at one time in organizations that I co-owned. Um, so 
I have uh, kind of my own views on it and that sort of real world experience and uh, how that applies to businesses that I've ran in, in my current uh, environment that I advise clients in. So I'm happy to, to get into the debate here and, and hopefully it should be fun. So tell me, Scott, I'm just making fun of your Midwestern accent a little bit. <laughs> um, Scott, were you ever a CFP certificate? I was not. I've never been a CFP. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that and just too many oh, for this call. The bottom line is, is that it was never a requirement uh, in anything that I did to advise clients. And then the more that I started looking at that early on in my career, I started looking at it. It became, and we can debate this back and forth, and there's obviously you know people that get the credential and, and use it very well and expand their knowledge on it. But I looked at it as I'd been in the industry for a number of years already, and I had real world experience working with clients, just uh, my own personal background and working with family and, and real world clients that uh, you're gonna go sit for an exam. And then basically, if you're good at taking exams, you pass that and then you walk out. And again, you have some work experience that you have to get in order to technically use the mark. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you're running around as a CFP potentially, and you may know more, you, you may know less than, than somebody that's been, you know, advising people practically for a number of years. So uh, early on, I kind of used that as a mark, not for myself per se, but people that we hired as advisors or uh, administrative folks to work with our clients at a different firm that I was a, a partner in. Um, it's kind of a, a basic credential for people that are kind of early in their career, just getting out of college, never been in this industry, but never used it as a requirement for anybody to advise clients because I know uh, of the way that the coursework was, the way that the, the program was rolled out. Uh, nothing has changed much with that. And, and I think to, to JR's point, I think even over the years, the last 20 years has become more biased in certain areas than that, that I would probably not even require that as even a basic understanding now. And I want to train somebody from the ground up uh, of the, the right way, in my opinion, to advise clients. So just for the record, before we get into the heated debate, I did ask several members of the CFP board and its affiliates to join us for the podcast, because I believe that these discussions are more constructive when we really do get not just Robert defending the CFP, but when we actually do get the actual CFP board involved, I felt it would be better, but I was rejected. I was coldly rejected, folks. <laughs> Numerous times I was rejected. Did they give you any reasons, Sarah? Balance. I said something like, yeah, he, at first he said like, but you're going to be so against us. Like, there's no way I'll ever come on. And I was like, but the goal, maybe I have said things to that effect, but the goal of this podcast is to be balanced and constructive. And he responded back and was like, balanced and this is what he said. It was so cold. He goes, balanced and constructive discussions are the best way to go. Good luck with the podcast. <laughs> cold as ice people. Whatever. It's not like I can't take a little rejection, please. Okay. Well, and, and to be fair, nobody really owes you their time or anything like that. Right. So it's, it's, it's not something that they owe you. It would be nice and it would be constructive, but it's, it's not like it's something that's owed to you for their, you know, they don't have to defend their position on a podcast if they don't want to, but I'm happy to do so. Uh, one of the things I do have an opening statement prepared, if you want me to kind of go through that as kind of where I come from, from my position, in addition to obviously being a practitioner for advocacy wealth management, I'm also an instructor for the College of Financial Planning. 
So I also teach financial planning courses. So uh, yeah, very much an advocate for the marks and for the education that comes with the marks. I will say to Scott's point, yes, experience trumps everything. Um, and I don't think that the CFP board would ever suggest that, you know, you become a superior advisor just by getting the mark. I mean, that would be rather silly. There's pe plenty of guys coming out of college who, you know, work hard to get the mark and don't have the type of experience. I would never make that claim. Uh, but I will say that it is a lot more than just being able to pass a test. You have to go through a year's worth of education requirements and take several quizzes and go through several modules and things like that. So it's a little bit more than just being able to practice a test. Now, I will say the SEC requirements are very much just practice, uh, just taking an exam, right? The Series 7, 66, 63, those are just exams. And so if you're a good exam taker, you could get through all the SEC FINRA requirements, the CFP board, you can't. You there's there's legitimate testing or competence testing through not only a general education through the bachelor's degree, but also through an, a year's worth of education um, through uh, an accredited source like the College for Financial Planning. Gentlemen, for sure. some folks, not attorneys, they're exempt, right? <laughs> yeah, and I guess to that, to the to the attorney or the, I think they're considering accountants being exempt as well, or like CPAs, not necessarily EA is being exempt. I've, I've heard of that. Um, but yeah, I guess that's the, to add some additional credibility or to add some additional, I don't know. Uh, to me, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think they should have to go through the, the, the year's worth of education as well. I know plenty of attorneys who were, didn't pass the exam, <laughs> you know, so the education courses would have helped them uh, despite them being exempt. To that um, point, uh, I'll be very clear on something here. I, I don't have anything against, nor do I denigrate in any way, the value of the CFP curriculum. Um, I, I do think it is particularly important. In fact, I'll, I'll take one step further. I have hired a financial planner into my practice. I am paying for her to go through the CFP prep program. I, I think that there is valuable um, information that you can learn from that. It, it, it's a, and my son may be joining me in the business, and he may be doing exactly the same thing. Um, at issue is that, um, my issue is with the CFP board, not the curriculum itself per se. And, um, I do think it's valuable learning experience. I do think it's also worth pointing out that prior 2000 to until 2009, um, you didn't even need a, a college degree to have, sit for the CFP exam. And today, um, you do not even need any prior academic background in finance, economics, or accounting in order to become a CFP or to sit for the exam. Um, actually, the curriculum is useful. I, I don't. I, I think if someone has no academic background whatsoever, it probably is a very good idea to go through that. Um, but uh, like I said, it's, it's my my issue is not with the CFP prep work itself. I mean, all all knowledge is useful and for to the client <laughs> is with the CF board and its conduct and its conduct relative to consumers. So, yeah. Jay, Jay let's oh. talk. Can we talk about that actually? Whatever you like. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of I'll touch on kind of my major points about uh, what John talked about in my opening statement as well. Um, I've prepared it, so I might as well read a little bit of it if that's okay, unless you'd rather go a different direction. But um, just one of the challenges that I've had around the ethical discussions is that most people don't have the same moral framework that I have when I come to a conversation of eth ethics in general. So my ethical framework to begin with is objective and absolute, whereas most humans on the planet grant many exceptions due to their bias or due to cultural whims of the time. The framework that I derive personally, all ethical discussions around my principle of non-aggression. So human interaction is unethical if it is coerced, threat of coercion, or fraud is used to motivate a transaction or interaction. All else 
as negotiable. Um, and an old joke about economics that will kind of summarize much of my arguments that you know we'll be talking about today. The engineering professor met with his friend, the economics professor for lunch and said, hey, how's the wife? To which the economics professor replied, compared to what? While preparing for this discussion, my thoughts kind of kept pondering the same question. The CFP board and marks are bad slash unethical compared to what? If we're comparing the CFP board to the utopian idea of what a fraternity of members of ethics and competence testing should be, then I await what I'm sure are going to be brilliant suggestions and ideas and further wait the day to be able to participate in the executed idea and receive the subsequent marks. Till then, this proverbial kind of daydreaming of what the board ought to be won't be very useful in this discussion because anyone can argue their utopia, few can really implement it. If we are comparing the CFP board to already existing agencies for ethical incompetence testing, well, I'm going to have to easily be on the team at the CFP board. The most important thing the CFP board does not do that other agencies do is that it does not coerce clients or advisors to participate in its organization. That alone makes the CFP board far superior from the SEC and FINRA. Participation in the CFP board organization is completely voluntary by both clients and advisors. In addition to being voluntary since its inception in 1985, the CFP board has required advisors to adhere to a higher standard than the other agencies except for recently. Suitability was always the regulatory standard until just recently, but care and excellence and fiduciaryism has always been the standard for the CFP board. The testing and education requirements also far superior to the SEC, NASAA, and FINRA. So I hope for one day for more organizations that are voluntary operated boards of ethics and competence, te competence testing and uh, look forward for them to compete to raise the standard of our industry and profession. Happy to chime in. Go ahead. Okay. So a couple of points on that. One, um, you suggest, Robert, that the CFP board is a voluntary organization, which at this point in time it is. However, I don't think Mr. Keller would dispute this comment, this statement at all. It is actually, I think, part of the board's stated objective to make the financial planning or the CFP mark a required standard for all who hold themselves out as financial planners. And that move would make the CFP board the de facto regulator of the financial planning profession. Whereas right now, that profession, anyone who uses the term financial planner must be registered with the SEC and held to the SEC standard of conduct as a fiduciary uh, under the Advisors Act of 1940. That's a fact, both facts, that, that the SEC actively, proactively regulates financial planners, has a standard of conduct and has a fiduciary standard that when compared side by side to the CFP board's standard of conduct in its new code of conduct, you will find that actually the CFP board's code of conduct is carefully worded to be less restrictive than the existing fiduciary standards for the, for the SEC under the Advisors Act. So, um, But restrictions don't necessarily mean higher ethical standards, right? So not all regula regulation that's restrictive by the government is necessarily better or more and more ethical. Well, I think, you know, the reason why securities industry is regulated as opposed to having um, a regular professional organization like the, um, C the AICPA or the American Bar Association is that we're the, what, the C what the SEC regulates is the securities industry. So you have actually a product securities that have to be regulated. So they're they're, you know, you're, you're regulating conduct in it by creating incentives and standards that, that apply to all consumers. And I would argue um, and I think I can argue very convincingly 
that both in terms of enforcement and in terms of the requirements of the standard, that the standard is much higher under the SEC than what I refer to as the faux fiduciary standard by the CFP board. The CFP board standard was carefully written to allow, for example, financial planners to not have to disclose insurance commissions that they might receive um, or opaque commissions in general. And it's, it's, its wording is material conflicts of interest as opposed to the SEC's requirement that financial planners must disclose all material facts. Very different, very different, but careful wording. So now I think that the, it, is, it is, I think this is part of the issue I have with the, with the CFP board misleading consumers. It is misleading to suggest that the CFP board is a higher regulatory standard than the SEC. It is not, it's enforcement record is zero. Um, and in, in terms of its standards itself, they're not. There are standards are actually specifically lower than the fiduciary standard held out by the SEC. So I guess two points to that. And I actually in the in, in kind of in preparation for this, there was that was kind of one of the specific ones, I think. So there was the claim. I'm trying to see what section I had it written down at, but um Yeah, the CFB board promotes a faux fiduciary standard that does not require its members to disclose potential conflicts of interest. Now, I mean, to the specific wording about material versus all facts. Very um, careful. I think that was deliberate. Yeah, you could you could say it was deliberate, but you can't say it was necessarily unethical or that they're doing it because that's an assertion, right? You're saying they're doing it because they want to be able to allow people to sell insurance, which they do want CFP representatives to be able to sell insurance. But oh, you can, I have I, no problem selling insurance, but why Why can't you, be, why, to me, the CFP board could make it easy for everybody. I would endorse the CFP board if they said, look, if you're going to be a financial planner and you are acting in a fiduciary capacity, part of what you need to do is disclose every penny of compensation that you receive up front and in writing. What's so bad about that? I, I would, yeah, I, yeah. I, I've actually, I have an insurance license and I, I will sell and I will tell people, this is how much money I receive. And this is how much money you receive if you got a different product. This is how, how I get paid. And it's, you know, you have to disclose that conflict. But the CFP board is carefully written to avoid disclosure in writing even of conflicts of interest. And as specific, there's no reference requirement whatsoever to disclose the amount of compensation you receive from an opaque source. Uh, well, I mean, to be fair, the CFP board even says that you should adopt business practices. So that's uh, Section A5, right? So disclose and manage conflicts of interest and even suggest that a CFP professional must adopt and follow business practices reasonably designed to prevent material conflicts of interest from compromising the CFP professional's ability to act in the client's best interest. That to me is pretty explicit. So it kind of feels as though from Section A5, your, your biggest qualm is is kind of nitpicky and hair splitting like actually i find that to be completely vague and ambiguous you may recall the cfp board also had a requirement in its standard of conduct unambiguous that all financial planners all cfp mark holders must disclose any prior misconduct any disclosures that were on their finra broker check or sec ipd records and it was just voluntary disclosure that's how they did disclosure that was the at the heart of that wall street journal expose and nobody did it. I mean, the way you just read to me was a standard that is vague and ambiguous, subject to interpretation. It's it would be simple. Just why don't you require disclosure of all compensation, the dollar amount and the percentage? To me, it's so simple. I mean, what why how would that how would that be a bad thing? Consumers would benefit from that immensely. 
I don't yeah, understand. So, so requiring the CFP board to be a little bit more specific in their standard. I mean, sure. I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to in writing. I mean, this would be a little bit more have to do it in writing with the SEC. We have to give everyone SEC ADV. You know, it, you have to, do, you have to do those disclosures. The CFP board doesn't have any of that. They just piggyback on the SEC. They're the never going to do well, that because that would go against the insurance agents. Kind of. Well, I mean, without any evidence of that being the case, right? So seventy percent of CFPs have have insurance taking, licenses. What you're doing is you're taking you're taking kind of this hair splitting language, and then you're saying, oh, well, they're doing this. You're associating unethical behavior around very little evidence of just kind of hair splitting language. You're saying, well, they're doing this. You're ascribing kind of an alt like a like a bad motive that's based in the only evidence is just the language in material conflict. So or in Section Eight Five. So, I mean, I don't think that's very fair, um, but I, I will say that, yeah, sure, the, the language could be better and it will be better and will adopt over time as, you know, this this industry grows and gets better. I think asking for perfection, you know, perfect is the enemy of great and good. And the CFP board, in terms of its ability to um, be a be a um, an organization for competence and ethic testing, uh, I think it's great and much better than the SEC. The SEC had just a suitability standard up until just a few years ago. Right? No, it didn't actually. That's that's FINRA. The SEC has always regulated uh, under a fiduciary standard in the Investment Advisors Act since 1940. The SEC regulates all financial planners and they have always been held to a strict fiduciary standard. You're talking about the suitability standard is for brokerage. So not, yeah, not, suitability not, standard not for brokerage and then, and then the dual hat system basically it doesn't it doesn't work because you can't serve two masters and so the sec had had no no and they still don't they still they're still struggling with the whole dual hat situ situation where you because i worked in the i worked in the brokerage industry if if you're wearing two hats you can't serve two masters you can't it's it's too it's too difficult of a of a conflict of interest to be able to say oh well on the one hand i do this and then also on the other hand i do this and the sec really had no um no 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 real what should I say? N no real language in order to to deal with that problem, right? So you can say yes, the nineteen the, the investor investment advisor act of nineteen forty requires a regulatory standard or a fiduciary standard, but when it comes yeah. to what broker dealers were doing with both their advisor and broker dealer dual registrations, I mean, yeah, you actually they were you're talking actually. There's a couple of problems with what you're saying. First of all, financial planner. I'm specific speaking specifically about people who hold themselves out as financial planners. Anyone who holds himself out as a financial planner and gives advice as it pertains to securities is always held to a fiduciary standard, whether they're dual registered or not. The challenge has been in the SEC's regulations. So you're talking about, you're talking about fiduciary standard to people who are investment advisors, portfolio managers under the Advisors Act, but not people who are financial planners. So anyone who is using that term financial planner, certified or otherwise, is always held to a fiduciary, fiduciary standard, except only one problem. The SEC's reach only extends to securities. And the problem has always been the insurance side. 70% of CFPs have insurance licenses. And they're out, whatever you do on the insurance side outside of variable products, you're not regulated by the SEC. It doesn't apply to you. The, the fiduciary standard that the SEC applies doesn't because they can't regulate the insurance side. It's an entirely different agency. Yeah. Right. But so you're talking and, about you're talking well, about that, the problem another, with two hats. That's a third hat, and it's it's a big problem. Well, you're right. It's a third hat. It's a big problem, and the SEC has no resolution for it. Well, they can't. It's, it's not their agency. Right. But the CFP board right. could. Right. So the CFP board can. That's what I'm just. That's that's, that's what, what I'm saying. saying. They could, but they don't. Why don't they require their greater disclosure for the sale of insurance products? 
I mean, other than the hair splitting over the over Section A five, I mean, the, the material conflicts of interest. You have to disclose those. It's 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 pretty clear. Other than kind of the hair splitting that that you're talking, you're mentioning. It's it's pretty clear. You have to disclose material conflicts of interest. You know, you don't even have to disclose it in writing under the standard of conduct. So if you're ever questioned, yeah, I disclosed it. You know, there isn't well, that. I mean, whether you have to disclose it in writing or what, verbally is better anyway. Verbally, look, I agree. Have it in writing. That that is going to that's going to be perfect because then you can say I have it in writing. But and as far as and, the and the board here, balked at that. The board balked at that, and, and it specifically says in the standard of conduct, you do not have to make disclosures in writing. Right. And so my take on this is, if the CFP board was that interested in full disclosure, they would have this mechanism on their website for all of CFP certificates to be able to list their compensation methods. Not again into exact fees, but. What do they do? They, they strip that out of their website. And then, you know, again, there's blowback on it. We might consider doing it again. And again, radio silence. So there, there's no, the CFP board has no desire to have full disclosure because it would limit the, limit basically the number of members, the membership, the money-making machine that they've created. So I'm with JR. I mean, my take on this is, again, from a curriculum standpoint, like I said early on, I mean, that was kind of the base requirement that we, kind of looked at to bring on new advisors kind of right out of school or with very little of no industry experience. And I think it is a good platform for that. But again, that's the teaching part of it. That's not, you know, again, now you're answering to the CFP board after the fact as a CFP certificate saying, okay, now I'm running around with a CFP credential. And I think unfortunately, the CFP board is all fine and happy with people running around kind of using that mark as a marketing tool and then they can kind of wash their hands of this and say, yeah, we just, you know, have oversight. We have all these rules and and how we're going to, you know, monitor discipline of it and so on. But the reality is you got to be practically a convicted felon for them to strip you of your mark. They want you to basically have that mark. They can collect revenue. They can tout their high numbers of CFP certificates. So, again, there's a lot of good CFPs out there that hold the mark, that do great stuff for people. But there's also a lot of people out there that use it for marketing, that use it for, again, their own benefit. And the CFB board is really kind of, uh, you know, complicit in that behavior. Yeah, well, it's funny. Well, I just make a, just this is just a funny no, joke. joke. But um, I, I was writing a paper on on this topic once, and I was tempted to write it. There's a famous quote from Winston Churchill. I, I think it was. They said, uh, "America can always be counted to, on to do the right thing." after exhausting all other possibilities. And I was tempted to use that quote for the CFP board, but then I got to think about it. I'm like, no, I don't think they're ever doing the right thing. At every turn, they have consistently avoided doing the right thing. Throughout its history, from, the, from, the, from 1980 to the present, it's been a consistent pattern. JR, can you tell us what that history is in a nutshell? Can you just give us the major points? I just give you a couple examples to say. So uh, Michael Kitsis a couple of years ago had a great podcast where he featured a guy named Ben Coombs. And Ben Coombs was in the very first class of CFPs. The very, he was one of the very first CFPs there ever was. And, um, and he, he was very candid about the whole thing. He said, yeah, we were all insurance salespeople. And we wanted to be, have credi become credible to compete with the brokerage people. So we thought that getting this designation would give us credibility so that we could go out and sell master limited partnerships and insurance and, and have that financial planning credibility. He said it very clear, clearly. That, and everybody knows that it had its roots 
its origins in the insurance industry. And again, there's nothing bad about the insurance industry, but it's about this disclosure issue that bothers me. Yeah, um, and so in, in terms of the impact on consumers, and just to fast forward a little bit, in 2003, there was a guy named Bradford Blight who at the time was, uh, he was actually from your neck of the woods, uh, Sarah, and I think he was from Wakefield. Um, but he, um, he was uh, Bernie Madoff, he was the first Bernie Madoff. He ran a $30, $30 million Ponzi scheme, which was by Madoff stated very little and Madoff made him forgotten. But um, he specifically said he went to prison for stealing from Masonic lodges and churches in his community. Um, he had a radio show and he was popular. He, um, he said, I got the CFP bark for marketing credibility. Is I use that to build trust with people, and that's how I defrauded people. And so from that, one would think that the CFP board would say, okay, it's not okay to go out and tell consumers that CFPs are more trustworthy than anyone else, that they have greater integrity, and that they're held to higher standards. Instead, the CFP board's gone and spent millions of dollars in advertising, tell, telling consumers, you should always trust the CFP. If you don't have the CFP mark, you just don't know. That, to me, is proactively harmful to consumers. And we saw that again in 2018 and 2000, or 2018 when that Wall Street Journal story broke. Thousands and thousands of CFPs did not disclose to the board, which didn't bother to check, to see what disclosure history consumers had. In the wake of that scandal, for all the fuss that's been made about it, almost all of those 6,000 CFPs who had disclosure marks are still showing up on the CFP board's verification website as no, no, no disclosures. There, no, um, no mark. They're being endorsed as being clean on the CFP verification site. Now, yeah, you can go and look up every CFP on IAPD or FINRA broker check, but really, and when you go down that list, there are some people on there. How I say, I always say, they, they're people with disclosure histories that would make Bernie Madoff blush, um, and they're still practicing. The CFP board has done nothing to protect consumers from those people. In fact, they go out and proactively help consumers get preyed upon by saying you should always trust a CFP. And they're saying, saying that their CFPs are thoroughly vetted. They're not. They're not. That those people are still out there. So they, I mean, that's that's just blatant editorializing. I mean, saying that I, there are people in the CFP that have the marks that would make Bernie Madoff blush. Yes. You also said in your article that if the CFP, I'm happy to give you country, the, the happy to have give you the names. For a country, it would be North Korea. That is no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Don Trone. In the article, you said if I the quoted CFP Don Trone. No, I quoted Don Trone, who is the CF, who is the C, CEO and founder of Fiduciary 360. That's Don quote Don Trone's words, not mine. I quoted him. You can see there's quotes around it. Uh, great. It's you quoted him and you agree with him. The reason you quoted with him is because you agree with him. Hold on. What's the what's the exact quote? Because let me look up who actually said that. I have I have the article. Okay. So so um uh so so Trone goes on to say. Integrity is a characteristic that the board fails to demonstrate, and he gives some bullet points as to why. And he says uh, directors are not represented by independent legal counsel. And I can go through each bullet point because I went through each bullet point. If the Again, I'm quoting Trump. Country, it would be North Korea. I mean, besides this being kind of the the silly editorializing where people I disagree with are Hitler and and whatnot, like it's that's just kind of annoying in general. Like comparing a voluntary organization to a regime that will kill people if you leave their country is just insane. That's Don Trump, who is a pretty respectable well, guy in the irrelevant, industry. Irrelevant of whether you put it there because you agree with him. Okay, let me tell that's you this. Not, how, do you feel so about, like, how do you feel about the CFP promoting a person, a CFP on his march, promoting them as being more ethical, more trustworthy, when they have 26 disclosure marks on their record? 26. And they're, I mean, context, 
Do you think that's good for consumers? Context is everything. One of the things that the, the, the Wall Street Journal cites is a poor guy who logged into someone's account and was fined $10,000. Like, 26 that, that, disclosure I mean, marks is, is not bad luck. Sure, but is that, is that like, is that Bernie Madoff? Is, is that guy really putting Bernie Madoff in shame because he Madoff. logged into somebody's account? And that's what the Wall Street Journal cites. That's that's them saying, look at all these bad people. This CFPB logged into somebody's account. And then, and then you go around and say that like people have marks that would put Bernie Madoff to shame and that the CFP board is equivalent to North Korea. Like that's that 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 editorializing is nuts and it's not helpful at all. Like that's I, I, I hope it is helpful in raising consumer awareness that they could be preyed upon by simply trusting someone who's a CFP board. I actually think as long as I look at the through the through the lens of what's good for consumers. I don't think those people should be out there. I don't think the CFP board should be spending millions of dollars telling people to trust CFPs. I really don't. I think that that's, um, I, I think that that is why I'm a zealot. Ad, it, ad revenue, look, ads in and of themselves don't create harm. They, they don't. So if, if so Dorito spends $500 million on an ad for the Super Bowl and that's harmful, like there's this like this this editorializing and subjectivity when it comes to funds and, and salaries as well. It's it's silly, and the the bullet points that uh, that Trone goes through. There are no open elections for directors. Democracy is not a sign of ethical behavior. There, that is just that is just a flat out assertion that somehow if directors were elected, they'd somehow be more ethical. That's that's silly. You can have a fully democratic board that can be unethical. That doesn't make them less ethical because they don't have a democratically elected board. Um, directors are required to sign confidentiality agreements. I. That makes sense. In a lot of ways, signing a confidentiality agreement is more ethical than the alternative. Any conversation with a director, uh, public or private, requires the presence of senior staffer. Again, not that's just an assertion. It's not evidence of unethical behavior. Uh, board minutes are not made public. Why should they be? There's no reason. This isn't a public institution. This is a private institution. There's no reason for their, their minutes to be public. And in a lot of those meetings, maybe they're talking about people who have been falsely accused of certain things and that shouldn't be made public because if that's the case, then anyone can falsely accuse anyone, drag their name through the mud, have it be false when they could have just kept it confidential until a better um, a better investigatory process happened. So it's like none of these things are evidence of unethical behavior in and of themselves. They're just things that you're just kind of nitpicking that you feel or that Trone feels are things that could potentially be unethical. I have in front of me a list of 200, just, it's just two, there's thousands more, but 200 CFPs who have multiple disclosures on their record. And I don't think if you look at them, you will think that these are nitpicky, but they are endorsed by the CFP board. Of those 6,000 people that the, the Wall Street Journal, and there's more than that, but of those 6,000 that did not disclose to the CFP board that they had disclosure marks on their record, even though CFP board policy at the time required it, not a single one of those persons, people has ever been, that never, the CFP were never enforced any fine or any, any, they didn't enforce the rule. It was there and, and everyone violated it and they haven't done anything to re rectify it. I mean, almost all of those people are still out there. And I think the CFP board does have a duty to consumers to protect them. And it's, you know, I, I'm not, no, I'm not in any way saying that CFPs are more or less ethical than financial than financial planners who are not CFPs. In fact, there, there's the data on that is mixed. It's very difficult to actually discern that. What I'm saying is it's unethical and it is just um, harmful to consumers to go out and tell consumers that you should trust the CFPs because they're more ethical. 
It's and it's just not. That's just not. That's not cool. That harms consumers. And and like I said, Bradford Blight said it clear as day. I use the mark to build trust so that I can defraud people. When the CFP board has known for twenty years that people do that, why do they keep telling consumers that they should trust everyone? And why don't they enforce standards against the, the bad apples that are in their bunch? Why don't they do that? Because those the would be to be pro consumer. Yeah, I, I like I said, I'm not I, to Robert's point. I'm not going to editorialize. I'm not going to speak for why they do that. Um, I, I, I don't know why they do that, but I do know that they do, and that is the pattern. Like I said, it's you, I'm not just hyperbolizing. I'm I'm saying there is a long demonstrated history of this behavior from the CFP board that goes back to its foundation and nothing's really changed. And the, and the funny thing about it is, is there's a lot of advisors out there, especially in social media that happen to be CFPs, at least over the course of the last year that I've noticed more, and it's actually maybe a little further back too, that there's more complaints every time the, the membership fees go up, oh, I'm gonna drop my CFP mark, oh, I don't really get any value out of the CFP board and that, and what do they do? They renew because they still have the CFP mark next to their name because they're using it for marketing purposes. So unfortunately, in my opinion, you know, once you get beyond the educational side of this and now you're a CFP, I think there's a lot of mixed results of why people use the mark and don't use the mark. And it's all part of the confusion with the public. So that's kind of on the advisor. That's not on the CFP board, but the CFP board, again, is complacent in letting advisors do this because they don't have to report, you know, again, uh, issues with the you know, violations, issues that they've had in the past. They don't have to report, um, you know, their compensation uh, methods that they have. I mean, heck, you even read some of these ADVs of these advisors that are actually on the board that get appointed every year. And I mean, I've been in this industry for 20 plus years and some of these are 10 pages long and I can't even figure out what a client would be charged, but yet they're on the board. So to, to respond to some of that, obviously, one of the things that was cited uh, by you guys is that there were uh, 84 uh, disciplinary actions that were taken in 2020. Wow. So, so one, yeah, but here's the problem with that, right? So this is just a self-fulfilling prophecy argumentation, because on the one hand, if there were thousands of disciplinary actions, your argument would be, oh, well, they're obviously they're unethical. This whole organization is unethical. Look at how many people are being disciplined, right? And on the flip side of that, if there's small amount of people that are being disciplined, it's, oh, they're not disciplining enough. So it's kind of the circular uh, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy logic that comes from, from this type of mentality. The, the I, I have a counter to that. Um, yeah. and I, I, I actually don't have, um, any issue with whatever that number is. What I have an issue with is the CFP board's outspoken criticism of the SEC for its enforcement capabilities. But I would be willing to bet that out of those 84 or whatever number it was, all of them were initiated by the SEC. None of those were found based or the SEC or criminal investigation. Somebody got arrested for something or there was a major violation at the SEC. And that's how the CFP board found out about it. It wasn't proactive enforcement by the CFP on its own members. Um, so, so I will yeah, say that, the SEC the compared to the CFP board, right? 80% of the time, the CFP or uh, sorry, the SEC, uh, they litigate, they settle. They're not interested in justice. They're supposed to be a, an arm of justice, an arm of the uh, judicial branch, uh, not the judicial branch, sorry, the, the, the enforcement branch of the government, right? So that's their job is to put people in jail. They settle 80% of the time. The SEC is not interested in justice. The, I, um, the, yeah. the SEC 
let Bernie Madoff get away with what Bernie Madoff got away with after several people had tried to tell the SEC that Bernie Madoff was getting crazy returns that made no sense, and he's probably running a Ponzi. They did not get Bernie Madoff. Madoff confessed. In addition, Belfort, Jordan Belfort, the common wolf of Wall Street person, ran his broker-dealer for 10-plus years and was cited as probably the worst broker-dealer of infringements in that decade, and they let him continue doing business. So if we're talking about the CFP board's enforcements, right, as being a non-government entity versus the government entity that is supposed to be about justice, the SEC has a horrible track record of enforcement versus the CFP board, which isn't an enforcement agency, which is just a fraternity of competence and ethics. Now, you can say that by the CFP board making claims that they're more ethical, which I don't think they say we're more ethical. I don't think that you could get those exact words out on an ad somewhere. If you do, I would have to agree with you. That's silly because anyone is capable of unethical uh, behavior, regardless of what, how many letters are behind your name. But they do advertise themselves as having a higher standard of ethics and competence than what the SEC produces. And that is just factual. I have both SEC FINRA registrations and I also have the CFP. The CFP is far more difficult, tests far more applications when it comes to financial planning. That's just that's just fact. Uh, Actually, I'm not sure I follow your facts. Say that again. The CFP, the, the competence requirements exceed the competence requirements of the SEC, 100%. Takes months to study for the seven, takes months to study for the 66. I'll concede that. Although although I would also say there is no evidence um, that CFPs are more educated or more sophisticated than non-CFP financial planners. There is none. Now, I I agree with you. What I said is the competence testing is better than what currently exists among the regulatory bodies that are supposed to represent or help the consumer or provide justice to the consumer. I, I will not dispute that, that. I, but I will say that um, there is no academic requirement to get the CFP to have any background in finance, econ, or accounting. And right. I do, and I would also agree with you that if you think the SEC should have a standard for some background in finance to do these things, I would I would support that. I've always supported that. But there is no evidence to suggest that CFPs have a, a greater educational background or background in finance. That's not than the claim that I made. That's not okay. the claim I, I, just, I, made. I don't think you did. I just want to make that clear. So the other thing as well, as far as my personal opinion, I want the SEC to be gone and I want the CFP to be a standard, right? And I want several competing agencies to also exist as standards for our industry. Because one, I believe that a sta- that a fraternity of ethics and competence testing is far superior than a government agency that has no interest in justice. It's proven they have no interest in justice. They want money. And and you're accusing the CFP board of wanting money, but they also have all these other things that they have to control around. The SEC, they they are not accountable to anybody. The CFP board, on the other hand, far more accountable to anybody. I will will disagree with you on on one part of that. I I won't even, I won't take it as far as Sarah Sarah might, but I, I, I don't, I can't, it's purely speculation as to what the CFP board's motivations are. They don't share it. I don't know. I can't speculate. What I do know is that the CFP board turns a blind eye to my members who have major disclosure conflicts. And there are lots of them. There are thousands. And that they do turn a blind eye to them. 
And that is the problem. That really is fundamentally it. Um, uh, in terms of in terms of ethical misconduct, that is a problem. And I do say, I mean, it does say on, I, I, I can give you, I actually have advertisements in front of me and to I talk mean, about context it. Context is everything. So I'm not disagreeing with you on that point, but context is everything. Some of the, dis some of the disclosures that the SEC requires, I, I tend to disagree with. I don't think bankruptcy is that big of a deal when it comes to the marks. I think it's silly. If a doctor can smoke cigarettes and still practice and give good financial advice or medical advice, excuse me, uh, CFP is perfectly capable of doing the same despite being okay. a hypocrite. Yeah, actually, so, not uh, off topic on that. I'm also a little bit careful about talking about the educational standards because I do think that you should have an educational background somewhere. And I don't care if it's a CFP prep or a background in finance or or accounting or econ to or be the a financial American planner. College's chartered financial consultant. I, I'm I like competing. I don't. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. I, I just education. I think is important. So um, I, I, I don't. I don't dispute that at all. Um, so uh, I lost my train of thought. Damn, I had something good to say too. Uh, that's, that's the problem with being- All right, well, can we, hold on. Can we just talk about something that kind of bugs me? For those sure. of you following me on LinkedIn, you know that this, this is my personal opinion here. So I think that the salary is excessive for many of the CFP board members. Keller, Kevin Keller earned $1,009,329 in the year or on the form 990 for 2020. I believe that would pertain to his 2019 earnings, but these things are never made that clear on those forms. I, you know, the CPA, C, the FPA CEO, Patrick Mahoney, right? Lauren Shadow, Shadow, they're making in the 200s or the 300s. And I just don't see why Kevin Keller has to earn a million dollars. And in the meantime, they're hiking fees so that everybody who has the thing has to pay a hundred more a year. Um, I mean, I'll kinda, you uh, go ahead. You first, John. I actually, I, I, you'll, you'll, Sarah will be surprised by my comment on that. Um, and you might probably too, Robert. Um, I think Kevin Keller is underpaid. I think Kevin Keller has been the most effective leader for that role that they've ever had under his leadership membership in the CFP uh, mark has grown dramatically. He's created all these other initiatives in terms of de developing colleges for financial planning around the country and universities and things. All of those things. I think he is an extremely effective leader. He's probably considerably underpaid for his skills. He came, he was a lobbyist for the agriculture industry before. I think that's where he came from. He's an extremely capable politi political leader and leader of, a, of an organization. I don't think his being at the CFP board has been good for consumers, but in, in terms of what's good for the board, he probably earns every penny of that. He's very effective at what he does. Yes, but this is a nonprofit. It's, 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 it's a membership organization and it has, it has and it, his, stand, his objective is to, to make the standard a, re, a, a requirement. So, I mean, he's, he's working towards that goal. I, I think he's, he's done everything he's asked to do and he's compensated at least according. I don't, it's, it doesn't matter that it's a nonprofit. This isn't a charity. This isn't this isn't St. Jude's Children. This isn't William Aramony at United Way. This is a private membership organization that is qualified as a nonprofit, but it's not a charity. Um, I, I, I would say I don't disagree with Sarah or John. I would just say that salary is completely negotiable. Uh, your salary and my salary compared to a salary of someone in Zimbabwe would seem excessive. So you can't apply a moral ethical standard among something that is completely subjective 
and completely opinion like we just had here, right? Sarah thinks it's too much. John thinks it's too little. I, I think it's probably fine. Whatever you negotiate in terms of your salary and your compensation, that's what you negotiate as long as it's trans transparent between the parties. So you can't provide an objective ethical value on something that's inherently subjective like compensation. Well, but there's a compensation consultant that was hired to evaluate if that was fair or not. But it was hired, of course, by the CEO. Does other, other than give their opinion. It's very much similar to any other market consultant. I think X should cost X. Uh, it, the job market is, is a market for a reason. Like you just negotiate your salary like anybody else. Like you would negotiate the cost of apples, the, negotiate the cost of oranges. Anything that's, that's part of a market construct is going to be negotiated. And nonprofit is just a construct of the IRS. When I go and I go to the playground... And not that I really talk to that many people because I have four kids and I'm just trying to like survive. Okay. But when I go to the playground and I hear people talking about, oh, there's, we're going to have a CFP come into my, to my work to present on how to invest my 403B, right? Then I'll, then I'll say to myself, damn, that Kevin Keller's doing it, man. But until then, I don't think I'm going to feel it's justified for Kevin Keller to be making a million bangers a year. I'm just, it's just, maybe I'm just an old fashioned kind of a person. Um, I, I, let me interrupt you. I just, I, I actually have to bow out because I've got a meeting in, in eight minutes. I think for me, the bottom line is, is at the end of the day, the CFP board uh, as an organization is not looking out for investor interest. It's looking out for its own interest. And they're doing that via, as we just talked about, basically growing their membership you know, whether Keller's doing a good job or not, I guess it depends on what side of the table you're on. If you're on the CFP board side, you know, he's doing a great job. He's growing membership, he's bringing revenue in, but he's not looking out for investors. So, you know, how do you do that? You continue to have minimal enforcement actions. You continue to raise dues, you continue to grow membership. But again, none of that's in the investors or public's best interest. That's a, that's a false dichotomy. Is growing no. your business not in the, the best interests of your clients? Or is it only in your best interest? It's also in the best interest. No, it's, of your it's not because if you grow your business, okay, to a so if it's point, not, if it's not in the best interest of your clients, then you shouldn't be trying to grow your business. But for growth, for growth's sake, I mean, you can grow to a certain point, and if you're sacrificing what the mission is that you're trying to accomplish, and in this case, you know, the mission that they're putting out publicly in their advertisements is, is that we're the CFP board. We have these CFPs. They're running around. They can be trusted, and you should go use a CFP to be your advisor. So they're putting the face on that they're looking out for the public's interests, but they're not. I, again, you'd have to provide more evidence as to they're not, but their growth is is not an indication of unethical behavior. That's just- well, important. I think there's a lot of things you can, you can grow your organization and also still take care of your clients. And a matter of fact, hopefully the reason you grow your organization is because you take care of your clients. And the clients of the CFP are both the consumer and the advisors. It's a, it's a fraternity of ethics and competence testing. So I don't, I just don't, that's just yeah, not. You, you can do both. I don't disagree with that. You can grow your organization and do whatever your mission is. In this case, you know, they're saying publicly it's to, you know, again, look out for investors, hire a CFP. These people can be trusted when in reality, I think we talked about a lot of things today and there's a whole list of things we never even got into. Oh, we can do this for another hour. Yeah. I can't, I have to run to a meeting yeah. here in six minutes. I know, too. I know, I know. Um, so at the end of the day, it, it comes down to, I think just, you know, different people have different motivations and, you know, the CFP board 
as one motivation. And then, you know, the members and the, the, the CFP board have a different motivation. And then the public has a different motivation. So, you know, how do you mesh these things together? And I think that that's the challenge right now is at least from my perception and being in the industry for 20 years and working with CFPs that we actually had working with our company on staff versus folks that were other advisors that brought business to us that, that didn't do some of the things that we did, but were CFPs. And then also just looking at CFPs from afar out there and how they, you know, interact with the public and that I think there's a lot of room for improvement here going forward. And unfortunately, in my opinion, the CFP board seems to be absent from all of that. They're, they're not doing the public good when they're stripping away you know, fee disclosures on you know, advisor profiles on their website to placate all kinds of different compensation methods and conflicts of interest and other things. So again, that's not like you know, fluffy stuff in the sky. They actually did that. They actually removed this stuff from their website. So until they start reinstituting some of those things, they're not going to get my vote of confidence here understand if my i'm a cfa charter holder if my cfa institute raised my fees by 100 dollars, i'd be like bye honey that would be it for me let me tell you and and that's the great thing about the cfp board is that it's voluntary and you can leave and it's not north korea because in north korea you can't do that well, it's voluntary right now, but again, if that we don't know, but if their goal and is to- I disagree with the CFP board. I, I, I would I would not say, hey, let uh, the SEC is our, our North Star. That's absurd because the SEC is a horrible organization in terms of justice when it comes to consumer protection. It's just not there. They're interested in settling cases and getting money and and hitting hitting advisors and up for money. And you know, it's it's not an organization that we should admire at all. Um, I think the well, there's a CFP board at this point. I mean, they're, again, they're not doing anything different than the SEC is as far as, you know, again, they're not going out 80, what was it, 84 enforcements last year, whether they're valid or not, or should have been higher or lower. I mean, that's up for debate. But the reality is, I don't know, they got like, what, 90,000 members or something uh, that are CFP uh, certificates. So, you know, at the end of the day, that could be too low, it could be too high. But again, if we're just looking at this from the outside, looking in and saying, if they're out there trying to serve the best interest of the public or investors or clients or whatever you want to classify folks as, depending on your business, that the reality is, is they're no different than the SEC at this point. I mean, the SEC is out there, their mission is to protect the public. They do that by finding people, disbarring people from the industry. You know, the CFP board is sort of trying to do the same thing with these 84 enforcement actions. Uh, and who goes, maybe it might be more in the future, but there's no mechanism for them to do that enforcement. They're not proactively going out there and looking at different advisors. I and mean, even if they got a complaint, you know, again, I don't have any inside knowledge, but what is their procedure when they get a complaint to do that? I've looked at some of their proceedings and it's almost like going through an entire court system. So yeah, I appreciate the, the uh, you know, basically justice that they give somebody to present their case. But the reality is, is that even if somebody came to them with some sort of complaint about a CFP certificate, it would take forever for them to get through that process. That's a very complicated process for them to eventually make a ruling on whether they're going to take some action on a CFP you know, certificate, unlike the SEC. Again, a lot of these advisors or firms settle because they know they've done something wrong. They just want to get beyond it and stay in business and, and move forward. So yeah, I, I agree. The SEC 
from that's that what the SEC wants. Exactly. They want the cash. They don't want justice. And the difference is the CFP board isn't an institution of justice. They can't imprison someone. All they can but do is say they may want to go in that direction. So that's the that's I mean, the I mean they will never be able to go into that uh, that direction unless they absorb themselves as the SEC themselves. That's 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 absurd. That the, the main difference is all the CFP can do as a private organization is say we no longer endorse this person or right. we endorse this person. And then they have to build up their credibility through the market. The SEC, but there's no there's no uh, incentive just, for them to say we jail people that commit fraud. They don't. They don't do it. There's no so there's no incentive for them to say that yes, we're going to take action against that person. Yes, I mean, what's, there is an incentive. Their credibility. They would. The SEC they wouldn't has no accountability because there's no there's no credibility for the SEC. They will remain in force regardless of their credibility. There's no accountability with the SEC. There's far more credibility with the CFP board because they have to market their credibility. Okay, guys, 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 guys. All right, we have to end the show now. Okay. I know so, it's been fun, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, thank thank you, you guys. All right, so everybody listening to this, what do you think? Does the CFP board stink? Should you cancel your CFP designation? Go ahead and feel free to uh, send me a message and tell me what you think. You can comment to me on LinkedIn. You know, I love posting about these types of things. So go ahead and let me know what you think. And if you'd like to hear this topic revisited with the same guests or maybe other ones you might suggest, let me know that too, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please. Rate, subscribe, and review this podcast.